Well, good morning, church. It's good to be with you this morning. Let's stand together and we're going to sing of our everlasting God. Strength will rise as we wait upon the Lord. We will wait upon the Lord. We will wait upon the Lord. Strength will rise as we wait upon the Lord. We will wait upon the Lord. We will wait upon the Lord. Our God, you reign forever. Our hope, our strong
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. With all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. I will serve the Lord with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind, and with all my strength. I will serve the Lord with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind, and with all my strength. With all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind, with all my strength. I will serve the Lord with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind, and with all my strength. And I will love you I will love you I will serve you I will serve you I will trust you I will serve you I will trust you With all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind, with all my strength, with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind, with all my strength, I will love you, Lord, with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind, and with all my strength. I will love you, Lord, with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind, and with all my strength. I will love you, Lord, with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind, and with all my strength. Amen. You can be uh, remain standing. We'll pray. Let you stand while we pray, and then I'll let you sit down. So pray with me. Father, we thank you. We thank you for our, your presence with us this morning. Uh, we pray that you settle our minds so that they can focus on you. I pray, Father, that uh, during this time that the distractions of the day and of the week, uh, we set those aside and we focus our, our mind, our heart, our souls on you, worshiping you, loving you, and learning more about you. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And you can be seated. Well, welcome to University Baptist Church. My name is Jeff DeLong, and I'm here to welcome you. And I uh, hope that you feel welcomed. You'll get a chance in a moment to, to do that a little more uh, overtly. Uh, special welcome back to some people that were in Chicago uh, this past week, the Great White North. If you saw some bleary-eyed people wandering around, are more bleary-eyed than usual. They got back from Chicago last night, and I know that we'll be hearing more uh, about that uh, next week. Uh, and 
I hope that you found one of these in your hands this morning when you came in. And there's one of these that you can tear off. If you're a first-time visitor with us, we'd love to know uh, who you are and uh, some things about you, what we can do for you. Uh, if you have prayer requests, there's also a place on the back for us to know how we can better pray for you. So uh, now we're going to invite our children to come forward to uh, sit with someone. I believe it's Mr. Kevin, and the rest of us will get up and welcome each other. Thank you. us would you be free would you be free from the burden of sin there's power in the blood power in the blood would you or evil a victory win there's wonderful power in the blood there is power power wonder working power in the blood of the Lamb. There is power, power, wonder-working power in the precious blood of the Lamb. Would you be free from your passion and pride? There's power in the blood, power in the blood. Come for a cleansing to Calvary's tide. There's wonderful power in the blood. There is power, power, wonder-working power in the blood of the Lamb. There is power, power, wonder-working power in the precious blood of the Lamb. Would you be wider, much wider than snow? There's power in the blood, power in the blood. When stains are lost in its life-giving flow, there's wonderful power in the blood. There is power, power, wonder-working power in the blood of the Lamb. There is power, power, wonder-working power in the precious blood of the Lamb. Would you do service for Jesus, your King? There's power in the blood, power in the blood. Would you live daily His praises to sing? There's wonderful power in the blood. There is power, power, wonder-working power in the blood of 
Good morning. As you have noticed, I am still not Miss Caroline. However, she's here. Miss Caroline, did you have a wonderful time in Chicago? Awesome. All right, here's what I want to show you. I brought this, and it's like three things. There's this part, and there's this part, and I'll show you the other part later. What does that say? This is the offering basket from our Sunday school room, and guess what? One of the kids in our class brought an offering to church, which is fantastic. Now, everything you need to bring an offering, I have scattered among all of you here. So, how many of you, uh, who's got a penny? Who's got the penny? You go, that's a pen, I want the penny. There it is, okay, who's got the nickel? Yes, who's got the dime? And you got a quarter? Okay, all these things we gotta put together. Does somebody have an envelope? Yep, does somebody have a pen? Wonderful, does somebody have a bank? There it is. Okay, so here's how all this works. Um, this is a bank that comes from our house. May I hold that? And there's just, just a little can and there's a hole in it. And so uh, let's put a penny in it. Give me a penny. Thank you. And a nickel. Thank you. And a dime. And a quarter. All right, so this is how you can save your money at home. When you get money from doing chores or an allowance or a birthday present, you can take some of your money, save it in a little bank. And then when it comes time to bring it to church, open this up. And let's see. All right. Now, uh, I need to put it in an envelope. Who's got an envelope? There we go. All right. Envelope. Here's the important thing you need to do once you've got the money in the envelope. You lick it, you stick it, and you write your name on it. Who's got a pen? Thank you. Okay. It is important you put your first and your last name on it so that our church uh, records can uh, keep a good job of this. Won't this be surprising when she gets all of this today? I'll put it in this offering basket, or you can put it in that plate that they're going to pass around. Guess what? I got something for you. It is so important for you to bring an offering to church. I want you to start to get in the habit of doing this. So these directions are complicated. Don't move until I tell you. Sitting over here on the front are several people. They have envelopes. In those envelopes is a gift from me to you. It is a penny, a nickel, a dime, and a quarter. But it is not a gift for you to keep. It is a gift for you to give to church. Don't move until I tell you. You're going to go over there. You're going to get an envelope. You're going to lick it. You're going to stick it. Then I want you to take it back to your family and get this pen, write your first name and your last name on it. They can help you if you need help. Then, and do it quickly because they're going to start to pass that plate pretty fast. You put it in there and then you will have given your offering to church. You got all those complicated instructions? Okay, I'm going to talk to the grown-ups while y'all are doing that. Go now. And now I'm going to talk to y'all. 2 Corinthians 9-7 says that God loves a cheerful giver. Look how cheerful they are. <laughs> this is something you can do at your home to raise up the children the way they should go. If you've got spare change, if they take an allowance, 
if it's just st coins you find in the couch, start to build this habit in them. Let them realize the joy of giving and bringing their offering to church. And I'm so sorry, because now you're going to get an end of your statement that says your child donated 41 cents to UBC. So uh, make this a habit in your home.
Let's stand together as we continue to sing. Like a river glorious is God's perfect peace over all victorious in its bright increase. Perfect yet it floweth fuller every day. Perfect yet it groweth deeper all the way. Stayed upon Jehovah, hearts are fully blessed, finding as he promised perfect peace and rest. Hidden in the One day when heaven 
was filled with his praises one day when sin was as black as could be jesus came forth to be born of a virgin dwelt among men my example is he word became flesh and the light shined among us his glory revealed living he loved me dying he saved me buried he carried my sins far away rising he justified freely forever one day he's coming oh glorious day oh glorious day one day they led him up calvary's mountain one day they nailed him to die on a tree suffering anguish despised and rejected bearing our sins my redeemer is he the hand that healed nations stretched out on a tree and took the nails for me living he loved me dying he saved me buried he carried my sins far away rising he justified freely forever one day he's coming oh glorious day oh glorious day day the grave could conceal him no longer one day the stone rolled away from the door then he arose over death he had conquered now he ascended my lord evermore death could not hold him the grave could not keep him from rising again the living he loved me dying he saved me buried he carried my sin far away rising he justified freely forever one day he's coming oh glorious day oh glorious day glorious day one day the trumpet will sound for his coming one day the skies with his glories will shine the full day my beloved one bringing my savior jesus is mine living he loved me dying he saved me buried he carried 
my sins far away. Bearing He justified, freely forever. One day He's coming, oh glorious day, oh glorious day, glorious day, oh glorious day. Amen. You can be seated. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we, we love you. We, we celebrate that by living you have loved us. By dying you have saved us. And we look upon and reflect upon that glorious day and all of its majesty and all of its significance, assuring us of this greater kingdom that is to come. And so Father, in this moment we need your spirit more than we need anything else and we want it to come and do a work within us, Father, that helps us loosen our grip on the things of this world as we eagerly expect and anticipate the coming of your kingdom. And so, Father, be with us now as we continue to worship you and serve you with all of our hearts, our souls, and our minds. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. For many Americans... <clears throat> The tobacco industry's disingenuousness became a matter of public record during a congressional hearing on April 14, 1994. There, under the withering glare of Representative Henry A. Waxman, Democrat of California, appeared the chief executives of the seven largest American tobacco companies. Each executive raised his right hand and solemnly swore to tell the whole truth about his business. And in sequential testimony, each one stated that he did not believe tobacco was a health risk and that his company had taken no steps to manipulate the levels of nicotine in its cigarettes. Thirty years after the famous Surgeon General's report declaring cigarette smoking a health hazard, the tobacco executives, it seemed, were among the few who believed otherwise. It was not always that way. Alan M. Brandt, a medical historian at Harvard, insists that recognizing the dangers of cigarettes resulted from an intellectual process that took the better part of the 20th century. In contrast to the symbol of death and disease that it is today, from the early 1900s to the 1960s, the cigarette was a cultural icon of sophistication, glamour, sexual allure, a highly prized <clears throat> commodity for one out of two Americans. Many advertising campaigns from the 1930s through the 1950s extolled the healthy virtues of cigarettes. Full-color magazine ads depicted kindly doctors clad in white coats, proudly lighting up and puffing away with slogans like, more doctors smoke camels than any other cigarettes. You know, you look back on American history, that's, a, that's an article from the New York Times in 2007 by a guy by the name of Howard Markle, and, and it's fascinating to look back and reflect upon just how iconic and how prolific the cigarette was, right? It, it actually serves as somewhat of a cautionary tale for us, doesn't it? Because it wasn't even just that people were ignorant of the risks and the health risks that maybe were associated with it, but they actually celebrated it. Right? They, they clung to the very thing that was creating all these, these problems, all these diseases. And so anytime there was a question about it, anytime a study was presented, people would just cast it aside and act like it wasn't any big deal, right? That it was a, a personal choice of responsibility that we could make on our own. And so it's not just that people were negligent of the disease, they actually celebrated the very thing that was causing them such harm and threatening their life and vitality. 
it's a cautionary tale for us, isn't it? That, that there are many times in life that we can engage in something that jeopardizes our health and our vitality without even realizing it. And that in some situations, it's not just that we're negligent, but that we actually celebrate the things that are killing us. And so we, we should take that lesson and give consideration to what, what are the risks that we face in life? What are the things that maybe jeopardize our health and our vitality? And I want us to consider that question today, not necessarily from a medical perspective, but a spiritual one, a church perspective. What are the risks that the church faces today? You know, if we were to begin to populate a list of the risks for the church, we would, we would look at it probably in a couple of categories, right? On one category, we would think about the risk that we see from culture, these issues that are constantly thrust upon the church, right? Questions like uh, politics, right? That we have this great animosity that creates this division in our churches because of our political affiliations. We want to see our political ideologies presented from the pulpit and the congregation. And if we don't, we're going to go our own way. And so politics has become somewhat of a threat. Sexual orientation, sexuality, culture is forcing this question upon the church, and not surprisingly, different churches are reacting in different ways, and each response feels like the other response is a threat to the health and vitality to the church moving forward. We could look at issues like racial reconciliation, immigration. There's all these different threats or risks that the church is having to answer and respond to. And then we can look within, and we can see these issues that we think about within the church body itself, right? These, these questions of doctrine. We will go into great debates and, and great war and animosity on these battlefields of doctrine where we will consistently question a few passages about women in leadership and we will split and divide on how we interpret those passages. We'll argue till we're blue in the face over the five points of Calvinism and whether or not God has ordained every single moment or if there's a capacity towards choice. We wrestle with church governance. Should we be elder-led or deacon-led? And we will get angry about what instruments need to be on a stage and we'll go and worship otherwise if it's not in agreement to what we want. These are the risks that we seem to have identified, right? It's, it's questions of politics, sexuality, immigration, questions of doctrine and music. These are the threats that we seem to be waging war against in the church. And I wonder if we've missed one, maybe several. And maybe we're not just missing it, we might actually be celebrating the very thing that is causing the most danger and the most destruction. I wonder if today we are a church that has inhaled the fumes of materialism and have grown addicted to this subject of money. And we don't want to talk about it, though, do we? Right, see, that's the one that we just leave to the side. In fact, we even kind of learned this in seminary to a certain extent. You talk about money too much, people aren't going to be interested. They don't want to come and hear sermons on money. So we avoid it. We acknowledge it maybe once or twice a year whenever we need to set a budget or maybe when we're behind in giving. But at the end of the day, let's not talk about it because it's a personal choice. And we don't even acknowledge that it's a disease that's killing us. It's been very deadly. And so my goal today, I will tell you, is not to really give you a lot of solutions. <laughs> uh, it's, it's an invitation into a dilemma to acknowledge this disease that we need to begin to take seriously. Because I don't have a nice little three-point sermon plan that you get to walk out of here and get a nice little answer today. What I'm hoping to achieve is some level of perspective, an opportunity for us to gather together and hold up a giant mirror that forces us to look within ourselves and within our churches and evaluate the problem of materialism. Here's, here's one quote that I heard several years ago that I think helps capture some of that perspective. I believe it's found in David Platt's book, Radical. 
He says, we look back on the slave-owning churchgoers of 150 years ago and ask, how could they have treated their fellow human beings that way? I wonder if followers of Christ 150 years from now will look back at Christians in America today and ask, how could they live in such big houses? How could they drive such nice cars and wear such nice clothes? How could they live in such affluence while thousands of children were dying because they didn't have food or water? How could they go on with their lives as though the billions of poor didn't even exist? So we'll fight over who we voted for and what instruments need to be on the stage. And then we'll get in our fancy cars and drive back to our fancy homes and completely oblivious to the fact that millions are dying in poverty. It's a disease. Several years ago, I became uh, convicted of this in my own life and have been wrestling with it ever since. And I struggle with it. That's one reason why I don't have a whole lot of solutions for you today. I, I would think about the, the problems of materialism in my own life and I would find myself vacillating between two ends of the spectrum, either between rationalization or overwhelming guilt. Right On one level, I would look at everybody else that has a whole lot more money than me, family members, friends, whoever it may be, and think, well, you know what? Look at all that they've got. Look at all the things that they purchased. Surely I'm not materialistic because I'll never amount to what the Joneses have. And I will justify my own materialism. And the problem with that is that we can always find somebody richer to justify our own materialistic tendencies. And so I would rationalize it, or then maybe I'd become overwhelmed with guilt. I'd find friends that have much fewer means of resources, or I'd go on these mission trips and be exposed to people living in complete poverty, and I would be overwhelmed with the wealth that I have in this country, and it would just grip me with guilt. To the point where I would literally think, we need to sell our home. We, we need to just move into a poorer neighborhood. And yet even that didn't make sense to me. Because right? I remember thinking, so okay, so I sell my home. I move to a different neighborhood. What, what changes if I just go to work, come home, and watch TV? Poverty for the sake of poverty didn't seem right either. And so there was this pendulum swing between rationalization and guilt. And I didn't really know how to respond. And to make matters worse and more difficult, I don't know that anybody out there really has a solution because we're all victim to it. Sure, we have studies, we, we have curriculum, we have financial peace that helps us manage debt and some things like that, but most of them are wildly insufficient. And so we're all struggling with this. And as a result, there's not a whole lot of solution. Let me, let me give you at least one takeaway for today. Okay? At the very least, this discussion today should help us know how to pray. That really these discussions on these key convictions should fundamentally influence our prayers. That as we're asking the power of God to be unleashed in our life, we need to be asking that all of us would be centered on the gospel. That we would cling to the scriptures and let them guide us above everything else. That we would be praying for opportunities to engage the lost so that we can see thousands baptized and hundreds of churches planted and a movement unleashed. We need to be praying about a true sense of worship. Praying for our families and praying about what does it mean to truly give to the Lord. So at the very least, let it inform our prayers. But I know that something's off. Here, here's one of the things that gave me a clue to it. I, I'm going to reference a book today called Money, Possessions, and Eternity that was written by Randy Alcorn. Great book. Um, I, I haven't read all of it. It goes into a lot of detail that uh, we're not going to get in today. Things like mortgages and debt, things like that. But So I don't, I don't know that I can fully endorse everything that's in there, but the conceptual parts, the biblical treatment of the history of giving is, is really right on in so many respects. And one of the things that, that Alcorn points out is that there are somewhere in the neighborhood of 2,350 verses related to money and possessions in the Bible. 
which is more than the verses we have on prayer and faith combined. Jesus talked more about money than he did heaven and hell. So we'll have long doctrinal statements on prayer and faith and heaven and hell, but money, no, we're not gonna talk about that. It's a personal issue. And so what that tells me is that we have gotten to a point where our preferences and our tendencies on this issue have influenced our treatment of the text rather than letting the scripture influence our preferences. And so here's what this is gonna look like today. It's gonna be a long time before I actually get to the scripture. And when I do, it's gonna be near the end and I'm gonna have to kind of run through it. Um, But the reason I'm doing that is because in order for it to really do the work that I think it needs to do, we need to deconstruct this castle of materialism that we have built in order to make sure that we don't read it with our own prejudices. And so let's break through some of those things for a moment. Let's start with just materialism itself, okay? Let's look at this one brick that that has helped create this castle. It it shouldn't take much for me to convince you that we live in a society of rampant materialism, right? That, That should be fairly obvious. We could pick any category, homes, cars, clothing, storage facilities, toys, any, anything, and I could bring up a statistic that shows you our rampant materialism. I, I decided to settle on Easter since it's right around the corner. Now, here's what's going to happen. The National Retail Foundation is estimating that uh, by Easter holiday, our a country will spend in the neighborhood of $17.3 billion on Easter. Now, before we celebrate that, because it's the Lord's Day, let's be mindful that the majority of the people that are going to contribute to that are not really Christians, are not necessarily going to churches, and those things are not necessarily being used for the Lord's kingdom, right? Somewhere in the neighborhood of five billion is going to be used on food, a little more than three billion on clothes, 2.7 billion on gifts, 2.4 billion on candy, and a little over one billion on flowers. So let it sink in, in, in a holiday that lasts a day we can drop $17 billion like it's nothing. Spend $2.4 billion on candy. That's the society that we live in. Our our culture functions with this one idea, this one philosophy, right? To grow the bottom line. That's what we're about in almost every fabric, in every arena. Why would cigarette executives lie about the addictive qualities that they see in in those products? Money. Why would university administrations cover up football scandals? Money. Why would politicians vote against their conscience and do something that's not in the best interest of the people? Money. Why why would somebody feel so compelled to actually take another human being and sell them into slavery and treat them like property? Money. It's materialism. And it's destructive. Here's what we see in 1 Timothy chapter 6. This is how, how the Apostle Paul writes to it here briefly in those few verses. It says, Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. It's destructive. That's not my opinion, that's the scripture. And so it's not just the culture we live in, it's worked its way into the church. And so let's give consideration to giving in American churches today. Now again, there could be a whole slew of statistics that I could present to you today, but there was one that kept leaping off the page that was cited in multiple situations in multiple articles. Let me go ahead and read to you how Alcorn puts it in his book. 
The more America has gained wealth, the less the church has addressed the subject of giving. Perhaps that's why the percentage of income Christians give away has been declining for 30 years. In fact, dollar for dollar, the average American gave more during the Great Depression than today. That's insane. That's ridiculous. Right? That we have not just failed to talk about it, but in the midst of all of our affluence, people that were living in the midst of the Great Depression gave more than we do today. It's materialism, and it's worked its way into our churches. And so we think about it, and we, we encounter this problem, and then we begin to react in the same way that I did personally, right? We either ignore it and, and scoot it aside so that we can justify our extravagance, or we become overwhelmed with guilt. And neither one seems to be right. I, I love the way C.S. Lewis puts it in Mere Christianity. A lot of times what the devil does is he gives us two, extreme and con- two extremes and convinces us it's got to be one or the other, when in reality, a lot of times the truth is somewhere in the middle. So this is not a sermon today to make you feel guilty about money. This is not a sermon where you get to walk out and feel guilty the next time you want to go have a nice meal. You can never go on a vacation again. That's not it. When we look at the scriptures, the people rejoice at the harvest. They have feasts. They have celebrations. God does not want us to just live in abject poverty every situation and deny ourselves of those pleasures. He wants us to have fun. And aren't we glad? So money itself is not evil. It's this contract in society that that helps us efficiently exchange goods. It's the love of money. It's the pursuit of riches that is the root of all kinds of evil. And we have elevated that stuff to the center of our focus. And it's caused this disease. And so the way in which I think we work through this is we begin to think about kingdom purposes. Right? More than trying to compel ourselves to live in poverty or live into extravagance, we need to think about the purposes of God and the focus of God. Here is another article that I found that I think is somewhat inspiring in this regard. It's in Relevant Magazine that picks up on this same statistic about comparing our giving today to the Great Depression. It elaborates on it a little bit, saying that uh, Christians are only giving at 2.5% per capita, while during the Great Depression they gave at a 3.3% rate. Now, numbers like that can invoke a lot of guilt, which isn't really the point. Well, the larger point is what would happen if believers were to increase their giving to a minimum of, let's say, 10%, right? So if we just got to 10%, what would happen? Well, there would be an additional $165 billion for churches to use and distribute. The global impact would be phenomenal. Here's just a few things that the church could do with that kind of money. 25 billion could relieve global hunger starvation and deaths from preventable diseases in five years. 12 billion could eliminate illiteracy in five years. 15 billion could solve the world's water and sanitation issues, specifically at places in the world where a billion people live on less than a dollar a day. One billion could fully fund all overseas missions work and we would still have 100 to 110 billion left over for additional ministry expenses just by giving to 10. Those are the purposes of God that should elicit and evoke some level of our giving and to set us us free from the shackles of materialism. You wanna know one of the things that really gives you perspective? I see this time and time again when I was serving as a missions pastor and I go to these different cultures. And you know what's sad is that they will look in on us, brothers and sisters of the faith. When we have this moment of clarity, when we realize Christianity is not reserved to America and that we actually have billions of brothers and sisters that live around the world and they'll look in on us and they'll see all of our affluence and they'll see us bicker about politics 
and bicker about music while they die in poverty. And it looks like a complete joke. It does. It looks like a complete joke to them. We have fallen victim to the disease of materialism. And we have to do something about it. We have to think about the purposes of God over our own pursuit of money. Now, the article there reveals this this, uh, target of 10%, which leads us to the second brick in the castle of materialism I want to deconstruct today, which is the concept of a tithe. Right? You've heard that before. It's what we've been taught. Give 10%. This has been our answer to guard against extreme wealth and poverty. Give 10%. That's what God wants from you. It's what I heard growing up. It's what is taught more consistently than anything else. What I'm here to tell you today is I believe that needs to crumble. Right? That I don't believe that's a true representation of what we find in the scriptures. And here's why. Alcorn does a really good analysis of the Old Testament. He says, we don't really just have one tithe. Right? A tithe literally means a tenth part. But beyond that, we actually have three tithes that you see the old people of Israel actually commit to. There's a tithe for the priests and the Levites. There's a tithe for sacred festivals. And then there's a tithe for the widows, the orphans, and the poor. And, and all those tithes are given at different intervals and in different regularities, some annually, some uh, consistently, some every three years. And so it's pretty elusive. It's not a clear-cut formula. But he does some math and says, really, if you put all that together, the people of Israel gave closer to about 23% in terms of all the different tithes that they extended. And so that, that gesture was an act of obedience. But on top of that, you look in uh, uh, Leviticus 22, Numbers 15, Deuteronomy 12, and we see this additional teaching of free will offerings. And here the instruction is give freely, give as you feel led. The tithe is an act of obedience. The free will offering is a measure of love and spontaneity and joy. And there's no measure of the percentages here. Could have been 30%, 50%, 70%. Regardless of what it was, you look at the full picture of the Old Testament and there's no justification for a simple legalistic approach to say, just give 10. It's not there. And then you happen to flip over to the New Testament. And then we find Jesus. And what does Jesus do? Well, Jesus has this ability to take us to these teachings of the Old Testament and say, hey, you've heard it said, but I tell you this. Right? And he elevates the demand, doesn't it? He says, you've heard it said, do not murder, but I tell you if you're even angry with your brother, you've committed sin in your heart. You, you've heard, do not commit adultery. I tell you, do not even look at a woman lustfully, and you've committed adultery in your heart. Right? And so he takes it a step further. Now, why he doesn't have a specific treating on tithing in the Sermon on the Mount, look at the passages that we see Jesus say about money. Right? He comes specifically to the poor. We have the rich young ruler come to him and say, hey, I've followed all those commands. I've done all those things. What else must I do? And he says, sell everything you own and follow me. And it says the young man walked away with his head down because he was a man of great wealth. And so he turns to his disciples and he says, it is easier for a camel to fit through the eye of a needle than a rich man to get into heaven. He watches how people give at the offering at the temple. He watches them put down so much of these contributions, great abundance, but who does he highlight? The widow, two coins. So she gave out of her poverty. Everyone else gave out of their abundance. He sends the 12, he sends the 72 to go proclaim the kingdom. And what does he tell them? Take nothing with you. No money, no purse, no bag. Right? He begins to preach over and over again. Don't build for yourself storehouses here where moth and rust can be destroyed. No, build for yourself treasures in heaven. What good is it for you to gain the whole world and forfeit your soul? And so these teachings influence the early church. And we see the early church burst onto the scene. And what do they do? They actually sell their possessions and gave to each other. 
They weren't sitting around going, well, you know, maybe Jesus was just talking to that young ruler. Maybe that was just a heart issue. I think I get to keep everything that I want. No, they actually sold it. And, and so much so that the two people that lied to God and tried to settle some aside for themselves were struck down dead. Peter goes out and performs miracles, and what does he say? Silver and gold, I do not have. What I give you, I have in the name of Jesus. Get up and walk. So we have a clear, full New Testament teaching of the complete shedding of material things. And so my point is this. I don't see any justification for us to look at the Old Testament and the New Testament and walk away with the simple understanding of give 10%. I don't see it. I'll never forget the time I was sitting in a church and I saw the campus pastor stand up there and he said, isn't it great that God just wants us to give 10 so we get to keep 90? And it took everything within me to not stand up on my chair and yell heresy. Felt like that wouldn't go over well, so I decided not to do that. So I sat back down. But that's the mentality. Give 10 and play with 90. I don't see it in the Bible. Here's the problem with tithing. You can't reduce giving to God to a formula. You can't do it. And we want to so bad, right? We want a simple answer. Okay, preacher, need to put my budget together. How much do I need to give? 10, 12? Is that on my net? Is that on my gross? Tell me. And then we figure it out. We plug it into our budget and then we forget about it. And because we reduce it to a formula, we essentially treat God like a utility bill. We pay him like we pay AT&T. And that's not scriptural. We cannot live formulaically. So we have to also deconstruct this, this simple concept of a tithe and see that it's much more than that. Here's the third brick I want us to talk about. Let's say we, we shed ourselves of the shackles of materialism. We actually get beyond this concept of a tithe and we can see that we can give much more than that. Here's the next problem. Who do we give it to? Who needs to be the recipient? We've made some mistakes here too. Here, here's the mistake I feel like we've made is that it seems that we've given you one answer, your local church. Give it to your church. Now I wanna be clear, I do believe the scriptures support that stance, right? That if you look at the fact that the Old Testament shows the people of God giving to the Levites and the priests, if you look at the fact that the, the early church took up collections for the apostles. You look at the fact that, yes, in Acts, they fellowshiped together and gave to according to each other's needs. I do believe there's a justification, a strong biblical justification to give to your local church. But here's the problem. Over time, we became institutionalized and tithing became an operational budget more than it did many other things. And now there's somewhat of a conflict of interest, isn't there? Part of the reason people avoid this conversation is, let's be honest, when I talk about your tithing, I'm talking about my salary, aren't I? And so it feels a little odd, a little bit of a conflict of interest here. Can you really tell me what, what you really think? And we talk about our operating budget, and we talk about all the things that we need to keep the lights on, and we rob people of the greater significance of giving because we talk about paying an electric bill more than we talk about advancing the gospel. And so we've given you one option. And so let me, let me just explain to you my true feelings on that. Okay, I, I want you to give to the local church. I like being able to turn the lights on when I come to work. And I appreciate my job, okay? I do. But let me just be honest. I don't want to feel like you can only give to your church. I don't believe that's what the scriptures teach. So I'm not going to be budget-centered and finance-guided we're going to be gospel-centered and biblically guided. And what I believe the scriptures teach is that you should feel empowered to give in accordance to what you see people's needs are. 
There are great organizations and great entities. There are great needs that you will constantly face, and you need to feel empowered to give to them, even if that means we don't meet our budget. Because you want to know how I really feel? I'm, I've got a missions pastoring background. I feel like this church could crumble tomorrow. This building could fall down on its own, and we would not cease to be a church. But the gospel does not need silver and gold to excel. So I'm not that worried about it, to be honest. I want you to give, I want you to give faithfully, but I don't want to manipulate you into saying this is the only place that you get to exercise the freedom of giving. And I, I want us to be consistent in that regard. Here's the other reason that we struggle with this, is the church has failed you, haven't we? Many people that have come before me, many people that are standing as peers and colleagues, many people that will come after me, we've failed you. Church leadership has failed we failed you morally. There are numerous stories of people that have fallen victim to the crisis of character, whether that's infidelity, greed, or corruption. We failed you in competency. We've asked you to give, and then we haven't known how to use it well. We failed you materialistically. We, we fall victim in our philosophy of church with the same materialism. We build these monstrosities and we buy all these toys to make us feel better and we end up reducing our tithe to a membership dues that you would put to a country club. And so we failed you. We've shown favoritism to the rich. And so we've whittled away the trust so no wonder giving has declined. And so let me just first say I want to repent on behalf of myself and anybody else who has done those sorts of things. And I want to commit to you how it is that I hope to lead in this area of giving. Here are some principles that I want you to know. First and foremost, know that I'm going to fail you. I'm going to make mistakes. But here's what I'm going to strive towards. Here, here are a couple principles. I don't want us to be a church that is anxious to build bigger barns. I don't. We've, we've been given a beautiful building. And, and the scriptures say godliness with contentment is great gain. And we've got some incredible people like John Fisher and many others who make sure that this building functions and that it's well taken care of. And we're going to take care of it. But we're going to be content. I'm not going to be looking to acquire more property and big, better, better, bigger facilities, any of that stuff. I'm not looking to that. I'm not looking to, to grow some kind of crazy endowment where we can just have millions of dollars working and generating interest. No, you give, we're going to use it. We're not going to build for ourselves storehouses here in the surf. And the other thing I would tell you is that as we try to take care of what's been given to us, we're going to be responsible, we're going to be good stewards, but I'm not going to spiritualize it. Okay, so like, let me give you an example. We're looking pretty intentionally right now at addressing the acoustics in this room. I don't know if you've noticed, but there's a bit of an echo, okay? And so we're, we're seriously considering addressing it. And there might be a day where I come to you and I say, hey, this is how much it's going to cost. What do you think? Okay, and so when we have needs, maintenance issues, goals... I, well, I'm going to present it to you. We'll discuss it as a church, and we'll decide if we want to do it. What you're not going to get from me is a sermon about building the temple or rebuilding the wall and how God wants us to have better acoustics in here. I'm not going to spiritualize it. Okay? We'll, we'll be good stewards, and we'll take care of what we need to take care of. But I'm not going to over-spiritualize those things. I'm also not going to show favoritism to the rich. Whether you give $2, $200, $200,000, you're going to be treated the same and so don't, don't give with the expectation of greater privilege. I don't want to know how much you give. I'm not going to know. And I don't want to give any sort of favoritism. James is very clear to not do that. So you're not going to get a privileged seat at the table based on how you give. 
The other thing I would tell you is that over time, I want us to really become externally focused. It's, it's the nature of the way in which we've built ourselves, not just here, but across our country, that the majority of budgets are predominantly wrapped up in facilities and personnel. And that's true for us. And, and to a certain extent, I'm okay with that. We've been given a great building. We're going to take care of it. I believe that people are the best vehicle for ministry. We're going to invest in personnel, but we're not going to get overstaffed, and we're not going to build bigger barns. But over time, should the Lord desire us to grow that budget, what I'm going to commit to you is that it's going to be externally focused, right? I want you to be able to know that if you give dollars to this church, it's going to impact the poor. It's going to impact the hungry. It's going to impact the hurting. It's going to impact the orphan and the widow. I don't dream about days that we can have some sort of capital campaign and raise millions of dollars for a building. I dream of days that we might have a campaign to raise millions of dollars so that we can help print the gospel of Matthew and put it in the hands of unreached people groups who have never had the scriptures in their own language and giving money that may never come back to impact us. That's who I want us to be. We're gonna be externally focused. See, these are the things that I want us to do. This, is, this leads us to one final brick of deconstruction that I need to, to address before I quickly get to the text. Let's talk about UBC for a moment. Okay, and I, I've been here for what, five months now? So I reserve the right to change my opinion on this because it's been limited, all right? But I, I wanna tell you what I've seen. I want us to talk honestly and reasonably with each other for a moment. First of all, I want to acknowledge my appreciation for the folks who have given great consideration to the finances of this church. Kathy Raines, Minister of Administration. Debbie Roach, Financial Accountant. We've got a great finance committee who are good, God-fearing people that are faithfully handling these finances. And one of the things that I've seen as I've entered into this discussion and I've looked at the things that I've seen here at this church, we've, we've got this giving chart that reveals the, the last 20 to 21 years of giving history at UBC. And you know what that shows you is as I've looked at it, it says in the last 21 years, we've met budget twice, two times. Now the average giving towards the budget equates to close to about 90%. So it's not like we're woefully behind. But I can just tell you, as a fresh perspective, you know what that says to me? It, it, it makes me wonder something. I'm not really worried about the numbers, but I wonder if apathy hasn't set in. That in some respects, we, we might expect to not meet the budget. And maybe on some level, we're okay with it. And this, this apathy has created this other data point that's pretty interesting. We have these crazy spikes and dips with our giving here. Right, we'll have these Sundays that are off the charts, and then we'll have them just completely fall off. And, and when you begin to look at it, it seems to coincide whenever there was a direct ask or an intentional call for it, either a project or the fact that we were too far behind, which tells me that we kind of fall into this apathetic approach, and then when somebody says, hey, we need money, okay, we give. And then we fall back. And all I would say is that that, that needs to change. I don't want us to be a congregation that is somewhat nonchalant, and apathetic towards their giving. It's not about the numbers. It's about the, the ethos and the mentality behind it. And that's what we're after. And that's what leads us to the question of this key conviction of holistic giving. So let me quickly read this passage and then we'll, we'll wrap it up pretty quickly here. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, starting in verse 1. And this is going to give us the picture of holistic giving. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. 
For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people, and they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God also to us. So we urged Titus, just as he heard earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have already kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. I love that. Okay, very quickly. It, the passage starts with this theme of grace. It's the undercurrent that we're gonna have to stand upon. But here are the elements of holistic giving that I want us to cling to. First and foremost, holistic giving is sacrificial. Right in the midst of this great trial, in the midst of extreme poverty, they gave beyond their ability. This is the theme of New Testament. It's not formulaic, it's not a number, it's not an amount, it's a measure of sacrifice. The widow was held up as an example because she gave out of her poverty, not out of her, not out of her abundance. We must not fall in love with an amount. Right? And we do, it's the Oprah effect, right? You get a car and you get a car, everyone gets a car, right? And we're like, look at her, she's amazing. It's not sacrificial, are you kidding me? The woman is like the wealthiest person on the planet practically. It's not the amount, it's the sacrifice behind it. So here's the first question. When you give, is it sacrificial? Is it beyond your ability or is it within it? It's not just sacrificial, it needs to be generous. Right? This, this level of giving wells up in rich generosity. That they, they did this on their own inclination. Word generosity means sincerity, it's simplicity. It's this idea that they give without any ulterior motives. I love that, there's no strings attached. There's no sort of expectation that because I'm gonna give, I'm gonna get something else in return. And so that's the other question for us. To, to truly be generous, we need to give without those ulterior motives, right? And so the question is, is when you give, are you looking for something in return? If you are, that's not generosity, that's payment. You're looking for an exchange of goods. We want to breed this simple, sincere generosity that gives freely, regardless of what comes back to it. Holistic giving is sacrificial. Holistic giving is generous. Holistic giving is joyful, right? It wells up in overflowing joy. There's this happiness about it. There's this merriness about it. It says they urgently pleaded to participate in giving to the, to the other folks who needed it, right? There is a desire to do it, even in the midst of their poverty, there is a joy that comes with it. This is, this is the thing that we need to rediscover, right? The, the thing that we often have our, our minds go to when we hear a sermon on giving is we roll our eyes and we think, oh no, one more message about how I need to give my money and we have reduced it to a formula. We don't think about it and there's no joy behind it. We've got to rediscover the joy of giving to the purposes of God. Oh man, if we could rise up and alleviate hunger and illiteracy, and water sanitation, all those things that article pointed out, what a beautiful expression for the church. What a joyful gesture that we can make. Holistic giving is joyful. So again, how about you? When you give, are you resistant? Do you even think about it? Is there any measure of joy in the way in which you give? Holistic giving is abundant. 
Right, what I love about this passage is that it is overflowing with this terminology of abundance. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's something that wells up, it overflows, it excels, it exceeds expectations, it is rich in generosity. It's this same word that is used repeatedly throughout this passage that is speaking to this abundance. Now hear me clearly, it has nothing to do with the amount, nothing. This is not some sort of prosperity gospel that if you give, then the Lord blesses you with more. It has everything to do with their mentality and their posture. It's an abundance of sacrifice and it's an abundance of generosity. It's an abundance of joy. It's the posture and the mentality behind it. That's what holistic giving looks like. And here's another piece that we see in the scripture. I've been looking forward to get to this part more than any. It's beyond money. What does he say? He said, they excelled in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in eagerness, and in love. So then, may you also excel in giving. Holistic giving is not about money. It's so much more. If we become the most generous givers and faithful in what we put in the offering plate, but we don't grow in our faith, our speech, our knowledge, our eagerness, and our love, then we have failed miserably. Right, holistic giving is giving our entire selves to this gospel, to excel in every arena of life, to grow in the abundance of sacrifice, generosity, and joy, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in eagerness, and in love. And so also then our giving. This is the key conviction of holistic giving that I want us to cling to as a church. So how do we do it? How in the world is that possible? One word, grace. I love it. It's how he starts this passage, it's how he ends it. He references this, this love, this agape love, and it's almost as if Paul can't help himself but then remind the church of the ultimate example of love that we have in Jesus. He says, you remember the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who though he was rich, he became poor for your sake. It's this reminder that, that the pre-incarnate Christ, the Lord of glory who dwelled in heaven, forsook all of that richness, all that wealth, not of money, but of the glories of heaven and took on the nature of a servant for you and for me so that through his poverty, we might become rich. That he, Jesus, becomes the ultimate example of the most perfect sacrifice we could ever look at. He is the, the fullness of generosity, not extending financial gain, but his mercies, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and gives us now the abundance, not of material things, but the riches of heaven. So through his poverty, we might become rich. The only way any of this is possible is to stand upon his grace and look at what he's done for us. So let us no longer breathe in the fumes of materialism. Let's break that addiction. And let's breathe deep the mercies of our God. And let us extend this holistic posture that is sacrificial, generous, cheerful, and abundant in every arena of life so that we can celebrate our God and King who though he was rich, he became poor for our sake, so that through his poverty, we might become rich. 
Let us marvel at that grace and respond accordingly. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Father, I confess that in my own life, we fall victim repeatedly to the deception of materialism. And Father, I know that what I've experienced is, is emblematic of what we see in our churches, what we see in a lot of our lives. So I look at these, these passages, I look at this society, and I think about the significance that could be found if the church were awakened to a biblical standard of giving, not just of their money, but their whole selves, and what we could do to advance your kingdom. And so, Father, let today be a day that we do not walk out of here in guilt, shamed of ever enjoying the experiences of life. Let us not walk out in that posture. Let us also not walk out in the blindness of extravagance. Let us seek your kingdom first and pursue a posture of sacrifice, generosity, and joy as we give to you as a response to all that you've given to us through Jesus our Lord. It's in his mighty and holy name that we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so with that being said, we've got one more week of key convictions, and I'm looking forward to it next week. Uh, we're going to talk about love and community, and so it's been a fun series, and it's one that I hope that continues to stir all of us as we begin to hold each other accountable to the things that God wants to do in our lives and in this church. And what we need to acknowledge is that beyond just this moment, we need to leave into our lives and respond in faith and obedience, that God is a God of invitation. He's always wanting us to respond. And so we want to set aside some time right now for you to do that here publicly if there's a decision that you want to make known. If you want to join the church, if you want to trust Jesus as the Lord and Savior, if you need prayer, whatever it is the Spirit is prompting you to do, then let's do so obediently here, but not just in this moment, but for the rest of the week. So let's stand together and sing the song of invitation. Have thine own way, Lord, have thine own way. Thou art the potter, I am the clay. Mold me and make me after thy will. While I am waiting, yielded and still, have thine own way, Lord, have thine own way, search me and try me, Master, today. Whiter than snow, Lord, wash me just now, as in thy presence humbly I bow. Amen. You can be seated for just a moment. Um, I just want to make one quick announcement and invite any and all of you who might like to make a joyful noise. Uh, we are beginning our, our Easter preparations in, uh, in Sanctuary Choir. 
So if that is something that might interest you, I'd love to have you join us. We meet at Wednesday nights at 7 o'clock, and now is a perfect time to join us for those Easter preparations. We just, begin, we just have begun them, and so you can just jump right in and be there with us. We sing uh, on our Good Friday service on Friday evening, April 14th, and on Easter morning of April 16th. Jeremiah, did you have any announcements? Sure, absolutely. Okay. Always. Right. Hey, it's been a great Sunday, and I want to acknowledge the decision that's been made this morning. I want to also just encourage you that as we move into the end of March and anticipate the Easter season, uh, we've got some things for you that we want to encourage you to engage your community, your neighbors, as we begin praying for opportunities not just to invite people to church, but opportunities to engage with meaningful conversations and point people to the hope of the gospel. And so you're going to be hearing more about that as we get ready for that in the next couple of weeks. I uh, also want to remind you that not too long from now, I think it's March 29th maybe, we'll do our all-church call to prayer. We'll be meeting Watson Chapel, and I want to make sure that you set that aside and make that a priority as we continue to come together and pray for the power of God to be unleashed in our lives. Continue to pray for the nominating committee as we continue to work on putting together a search committee for uh, the search for the Minister of Worship and Music. Uh, a lot of great things happening in this church, but we're grateful for all of it, and one in particular this morning is a decision. Lance and Lindsay, why don't you guys come on up? Oh, Sorry, got it. We're good. We threw it underneath the pew. It's Parker, right? Yes. Okay, Lance and Lindsay Parker. I want to introduce them to you all this morning. Lance and Lindsay have been visiting for a while and have made the decision today to let this be their church home, and so we're excited about that gesture of commitment, and they have made that known publicly to us by coming forward. We're excited about that. We're excited to receive you, and one of the things that we want to affirm to you is that we're going to be the church that you need during the season of your life, and so uh, congregation, I would ask that you would offer that word of affirmation to them by acknowledging that you will be the church that they need to love them and shepherd them and encourage them and be the community that they need. Would you do so by saying amen? Amen. 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 We're going to celebrate that decision today. And so I'm going to ask you guys to stay up here to the front, and then after the conclusion of the service, you can come back up, and everybody, if you have a chance, come forward and introduce yourself and welcome them into our church family. All right, it's been a good day. Let's stand together and sing Ascending Song. I'm so pumped. With all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind, with all my strength, I will love you, Lord, with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind, and with all my strength. Have a great day.